Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me back to that passage that we read from earlier in John chapter 1. And uh, I would like to draw your attention especially to the first verse of John chapter 1, where John writes in in this very striking way, this spectacular way, we might say. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And our subject this morning is the deity of Christ, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week I said that we were going to begin a a series entitled The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And I said that it would be a series where we would look with God's enabling at the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ and we would consider him from various angles and avenues. We would look, say for today, we're looking at the deity of Christ and we'd look at things like the humanity of Christ and the wisdom of Christ. And we'll cover a whole range of topics, but our focus is Christ, our great saviour who came to save us. Now we noted last week, we were briefly looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't he, there that of all the subjects in the world, there's nothing greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important, nothing more wonderful than the subject of Jesus Christ and especially Christ crucified. You remember that we said that Paul said, didn't he, that in him I hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the person of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ is is a subject so great and so vast and so deep that as believers it should occupy the highest seat in our thoughts and our lives. And we said last week that this subject of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, it's it's a subject that is so unfathomably rich and so deep that if we were to spend even, as it were, the rest of our lives, every moment of the rest of our lives, studying and thinking only of Christ, we would still never plumb the depths I was thinking about it like this. It's like sitting in a little boat, isn't it, in the middle of an ocean. Wherever you look, all you can see is the sea and the ocean. And, you know, you look into the horizon, you can't even tell where the sky ends and the ocean begins. And so it is with Christ. There's a vastness, there's a vastness, isn't there, to the subject of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning I want us to look at this verse that's in front of us that speaks of the deity of Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God, that he is none other than God himself. And it's worth just saying that this is, of course, one of the most central and one of the most essential doctrines of the Bible. You only have to take a cursory glance of church history and it quickly reveals that this doctrine has been repeatedly attacked and remoulded down through the centuries. Heretical teachers like Arius have come and they tried to assert that Christ was merely a creature, that he was merely created. Some, of course, tell you that he was a lower form of God, but they deny that Christ is divine. The Nicene Creed, which was tweaked and finalised in Constantinople in AD 381, was written to counteract such false teaching. But we may be tempted to think that such controversy has been consigned to the past, that these things have all been dealt with in church history, that these things are not for us today. But there are many so-called Christians who still teach that Jesus Christ is not fully God. 
The Jehovah Witnesses, for example, deny this doctrine and they attempt some of the most amazing feats of biblical linguistical gymnastics to put there and prove their point. And this text in front of us is one of the many texts that they use to do that. And uh, they use it and distort it to come up with their own erroneous views. But I want us to look at this text this morning and I want us to consider this subject of Christ as fully God. And there's four things that I want us to notice from uh, this text this morning that tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Jesus reveals God. Jesus reveals God. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You'll notice how he keeps using this phrase here in these opening verse, the Word, the Word, the Word. He speaks about the Word, and it's clear from the context of the passage that this Word is a person. As you go through the passage, it speaks of being he and him. Verse 8, he was not that light, and so on. In verse uh, 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Verse 11, he came unto his own, and so on. This person, this, this word is clearly a person. Verse 15 tells us that John bare witness of him. He bare witness of this word, this person. And so this phrase that John keeps using here, the word, is clearly a title for a person. Now, we give titles today, don't we? You know, for example, we don't talk about Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor, do we? We talk about the Queen. That's her title. And of course, John is using a title here. He's saying the word. We're describing a person. This is telling us something about what the person is like. And the question we can ask ourselves is, well, who is this title belonging to? Who is John speaking of here? Well, John actually keeps us in suspense until verse 17. It's finally when we get to verse 17 that he tells us who the word is. There's clues, of course, along the way. But now he actually tells us who the mysterious person called the word is. It says in verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So John says to us here, look, the person I've been speaking out, the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and so on, this person who is life and was the light of men, he is Jesus Christ. So if you go back to verse 1, our text this morning, you might find it helpful to read the verse with the word Jesus in there instead of the words. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and the Lord Jesus was was God. You might find that a helpful way to read and as you read the passage you can insert the word Christ, Jesus for the words. Now as we just said a moment ago, titles usually tell us something about the person, don't they? Just to use the example of the Queen again, the Queen is our monarch and that's her role in society and her title tells us that's what her role is. And John uses this title here, the word, because it tells us something about what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. Now, why do we use words? Well, we use words to express our thoughts, don't we? If I want to tell you what I'm thinking, I need to use words to express what I am thinking about. 
And that's what the word represents here. Christ is the word and he expresses and he reveals to us God and God's thoughts to man. Look at verse 18. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ declares to us the hidden things of God. Verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, he's revealed him. He's the one who expresses the thoughts of God. And so we can say this just at the very beginning here this morning. If you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus Christ. Because he declares him. He reveals him. He shows us what God is like. He shows us his beauty. He shows us something of what his divine nature is like. Christ is loving. God must therefore be loving. Christ is gracious. God must therefore be gracious because Christ reveals God to us. Colossians 1.15 states that Christ, that he is the image of the invisible gods. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals God to us. But the second thing that we can see here, that Jesus as God is eternal. This is our second thing here this morning. Jesus is eternal. You notice what John says there. In the beginning was the Word. Now John takes us right back to the start of time. Right back to actually the opening words of Scripture. You remember Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. John here as he writes his uh, epistle here, he is deliberately echoing the words of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. You remember what it says there. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John replaces the word God with the words, the words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the words. And he deliberately does that because he's hinting to us what Jesus Christ is like. He's hinting to us and showing to us that Jesus Christ is really God's. Actually, the way that John begins his gospel makes for a very interesting contrast with the other gospels. I'm sure you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You remember how Mark begins his gospel? He begins right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Luke goes right back to the incarnation, and he begins with Jesus' earthly life. Matthew goes back to Christ's genealogy. He traces him right back to the beginning of Jesus' earthly family. But John says, no, 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 to understand who Jesus Christ is, you need to go much further back than that because Jesus has no beginning. Christ's story, Christ's life does not begin with his first miracle or his first words. It does not begin in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It does not even begin right back at the creation of the world. Jesus has no beginning. And so he's telling us here, look, Christ has no beginning. Christ is eternal. Remember what Paul says, that Christ is the firstborn of every creature. In Colossians 1.15, Christ as God is eternal. The key word of this opening verse is the word was. Do you notice that? In the beginning was the word. And it stands in contrast with verse 3. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
You see, there's this, there's this contrast. The vital point is that the worlds were made. The sun and the moon were made by God. But Christ was not made. He's not like the created angels. He's not like any of the other inferior creatures. He's not like us. But rather, Christ is the eternal Son of God. There has never been a moment when Christ ceased to exist. This is what we were reading back in Proverbs chapter 8. That passage we read from a few moments ago, here in the book of Proverbs, Solomon gives Jesus another title. Not the title, the words, but he gives him the title, wisdom. And again, it's another description of what Jesus Christ is like. Jesus Christ is the one who is wise, who has wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 8, it tells us there in, in verses 22 and following... The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. You go all the way down through the passage, verse 25. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. This is speaking of Christ. Christ was there before ever the dust settled upon this world. He was in the beginning. Because he is eternally God's. Those wonderful words in verse 30. Then I was by him, as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The whole section reminds us that Christ was from all eternity. And friends, as God's people, this is important for us. Now, the world of science spends billions, doesn't it, every year trying to find out, you know, what happened at the beginning of time. You think about the, the, the multitudes of money that's been spent on the Hadron Collider, trying to, I don't even know what they're trying to do now there, but they, they spend so much time trying to, so supposedly trying to find out what happened at the very beginning of the this universe when it was made. Of course, they don't put it in those terms. They don't believe the world was made. But they spend all this effort but they're missing the key. And what's the key? Well, the key is Christ. You see, Christ is eternally God. And friends, if we want to understand this world, if we want to grasp life and what, what life is all about, and we want our questions to be answered, then we must turn to him. Because the answers are found only in the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. In him was life. You want to find out what life is all about? Then go to him who is life. That's Jesus Christ. So John says to us here, look, in the beginning was the word, Jesus is eternal. But notice also another thing that, that John tells us here, a third thing that, he notes, that we notice. Because John also tells us here that Jesus as God is distinct. He's distinct. What I mean by that is he's distinct from the Father. He has a distinct personality. Notice the second phrase that John uses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John speaks about Christ here, and he says he was with God. He existed with God. Not in God, but with God. Therefore, they must be distinct persons. There must be a difference between the two. Now, this shows us that Christ is not merely an attribute of God. He's not merely the force of God. He's not merely some sort of branch of God. But Jesus Christ is a divine person. 
And yet at the same time, while there's two persons clearly in view, they are also at the same time both gods. Two distinct persons and yet both God at the same time. Now the phrase that's translated there in the Bible and the word was with God. There's a number of ways that you could translate that. Some people like the translation towards God. That the word was towards God or face to face with God. When, the, uh, when you often, that word, that phrase that's translated there in other parts of the scripture, it indicates that there's often an intimacy between the two things that are being talked about. There's a union. There's a relationship between the two. And so as we read this here, we see that Christ was with God. He was towards God. He was face to face with God. There was a union and an intimacy between Christ and God. They are of the same substance, yes. They are equal in power and glory, but they are distinct. If you go down into verse 18, John reveals a little bit more about this relationship He says, no man have seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. That expression there is highlighting what John says in verse 1. There's an intimacy, there's a union, there's a connection between these two persons. Friends, this morning we have to say there's a great mystery to this doctrine. God is incomprehensible. If we could comprehend him, he would cease to be God's. And there's this mystery to understanding how God can be two distinct persons here. Of course, we know in other parts of Scripture that we have three distinct persons to the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But here, John is highlighting to us these two distinct persons, and yet they are both God at the same time. And there's a mystery here. We cannot begin to fully grasp it, but it's revealed to us here in Scripture. One of the Puritans said this, you know, there's some doctrines that are like pills. You don't chew them, you just swallow them. And I think that's what we have to do when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to, as it were, it's revealed to us and we accept it and we swallow it and we praise God that there is these two distinct persons. J.C. Ryle says this, happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. We said there's depths that we cannot plumb. Here is one of the great depths, the Trinity, that there's the Father and the Son, and they're equal and yet distinct. But there is one thing that we can say in response to this, and that is that our whole salvation hinges upon it, and therefore we should praise God for it. You think about all the texts in the Bible that tell us that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. This distinction is, is, is for our benefits. Remember what we're told, Paul writes, doesn't he, that God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. These two distinct persons, they agreed in eternity past that the father would send the son, that the son would come and he would redeem us and save us. And so while we may never be able to fully grasp the doctrine of the Trinity, we can praise God for it. That God, the son, came into this world so that he might redeem us from our sin but there's a fourth thing that we notice here from this text we've seen that Jesus reveals God we've seen that Jesus is eternal we've seen that Jesus is distinct but notice and John comes as it were to the final thing here Jesus is fully God he says it plainly and the word was God if he says look if you haven't grasped it already 
If you haven't understood what I've been saying already, Jesus is fully God. He was God. He says, look, Jesus Christ is divine. He's nothing less than perfect God. And of course, this isn't the only place in the Bible where this doctrine is revealed. There's so many places, so many parts of the word of God we could turn to. Think of Romans chapter 9, another proof text that tells us that Jesus is fully God. Romans 9 and verse 5. It says, Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever? Paul says to us there, look, Jesus Christ is God, blessed forever. You could think of 1 John chapter 5, the letters that John wrote, 1 John chapter 5, and verse 20, he says this, And we know that the Son of God is come, and have given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life and John reminds us there again Jesus Christ is fully God and of course there's so many other places we could turn to we haven't time this morning Philippians chapter 2 you could turn to Hebrews chapter 1 they all clearly affirm Jesus Christ is divine and friends this morning that means that whatever we whatever we must say is true about God is true about Jesus Christ you see if the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God, then everything that we read about God is true of him. Take, for example, if God is omnipotent, all-powerful, then Jesus Christ is omnipotent and all-powerful. Revelation tells us that. Revelation 1 verse 8, Christ says of himself that he is almighty. If God is omniscient, if he knows all things, then Jesus Christ is omniscient and he knows all things. Remember what John 2.25 says just over in the next chapter. It tells us there that they need and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. John tells us there that Jesus knew what was inside every man. Of Revelation 2.23 says, I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts. You see, if God is omniscient, Christ is omniscient. If God is omnipresent, then Christ is omnipresent. Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And we could go on this morning looking at how the scriptures prove time and time again that Jesus Christ is fully God's. But the real question is, what does this mean for us? It's one thing to know the doctrine, isn't it? It's one thing to, to know that Jesus is fully God. But what is this, how does this impact our lives? When you go to school, when you go to work, does it really matter that Jesus is fully God? Well, I think there's a number of ways that we can answer that question. And the first thing I think we can say in response to this doctrine this morning, that if Jesus is fully God, then we must worship him. He's made us. We read that here. He's made all things. In him is life. Therefore, he demands our worship. He demands our praise and our devotion. He demands our entire lives. Our lives should be given up to him. And so our lives should be one of continual praise, shouldn't they? Our lives should be marked with a love for Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, is that true of you? 
Even in the smallest matters of life, even when we go to work, even when we're at home, even when we're playing with our children, even when we're doing the washing up, our lives should be marked with a love and a devotion to Christ. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Wherefore, therefore, ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. When you wake up in the morning, Christian, what's the first thing that you, you know, comes into your mind? Is it that uh, this is another day to bring praise and glory to Christ, my Saviour? What's your aim when it's at work? Is it just to do you know, the job and get out and get home? Or is it that you may do it with the, with the honour of Christ in mind? I think the second thing that we can say here, look, if Jesus Christ is God, then there should be nothing else that we worship. Not only should we only worship him, but there should be nothing else, therefore, that we then praise and worship. We must love him with all our heart and with all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. He deserves praise alone. We have lots of idols in our lives, don't we? Lots of things that we worship. Lots of things that we perhaps come into our mind, dreams that we have, things that motivate us that are not to do with Jesus Christ. And we should take, shouldn't we, these idols and we should seek to crush them and destroy them just like Moses did. You remember he took the golden calf and he destroyed it and he crushed it and he made them drink the water. We should take the idols and we should tear them down. Remember what William Cooper wrote, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Friends, this morning that's what we should be like, worship only Christ. I think there's a third thing that we can say in response to this. And that's this, if Christ is truly divine, do we not see how awful sin is? If the price of sin could only be paid by Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully divine, if it cost him to come into this world and to give his life, then sin must be awful. It must be even more terrible and even more abominable than we could ever imagine. You see, God didn't send an angel to redeem us. He didn't send another creature to pay for our sin. It wasn't, none of them could ever shed its blood for us. That was what the whole, the Old Testament showed over and over again with the sacrifice of lambs and of goats and of bulls. These things could never take away sin. But it took the eternal Son of God to come and to die. Christ, who was God, isn't this amazing? Christ, who was God, went to Calvary for us. Oh, how awful sin must be. But I think we can also say this, just as I close this morning, that if Christ is fully God, then what he did at Calvary must be complete. It must be done. It must be finished. His sacrifice must have been sufficient because he's God's. And God doesn't offer up anything that is less than sufficient and less than perfect because he is perfect. And so I know, therefore, this morning that if I'm standing in Christ, that I stand secure because Christ has fulfilled everything for me. His blood and his blood alone prevails, doesn't it? He is God and God cannot fail. You see, if my salvation was resting on a creature, if it was resting on the blood of a lamb or it was resting on the sacrifice of another human being, it would fail, but it rests in an eternal God. And I know that when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. Friends, this morning we see therefore how comforting this doctrine is that Jesus is God's. I'm trusting Christ. 
And he is God, and therefore my eternal salvation is secure. Paul wrote this, didn't he? For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Praise be to our Saviour, who is the eternal Son of God.